Moving right along. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So good morning to you once again. Good. We're not some crowd participation today. There's a lot going on. Feels like, I don't know if it's just me, there's a buzz in the air though. Semi-annual meeting coming up right after this. Roll right into Taste of Grace, so please come and have lunch with us. Um, and so, um, a lot going on this morning, and I feel like there's people that have a lot going on in their lives. I think we're all kind of a little bit too busy at times. Um, everybody's got a lot going on during the week, and it seems like there's twice as much on weekends, right? Kids got to get to a game here and there. We got work over here, jobs and things like that. And so now that, um, like I was kind of praying earlier, you know, that now that God has us here, I'm asking that he just kind of calms our thoughts and calms our spirits so that we can understand who he is. Just kind of hold us still for a moment. We can listen to his words. We can listen um, to his guidance, to his direction for our lives. Um, a, few big, uh, a few weeks back, in fact, our topic for the youth group was distractions. And we talked about how, uh, how to eliminate distractions, how to avoid distractions, and how to really avoid being the distraction or becoming the distraction in, in other people's lives. And so that's what we're here about. I want to kind of remind us and kind of set the mood where we're going this morning and the things that, that God has in store for us that he wants in our lives. That's what the Bible is all about, to help strengthen our relationship with him. So having said that, strengthening our relationship with God, the things he has in store for us, where we are right now, I want to say to you again, Happy Easter. Okay, you're getting this, right? Easter isn't just a one-day celebration. It's a 50-day celebration, right? But from Easter Sunday, we've got Ascension Sunday coming up. We've got um, Pentecost Sunday coming up. You're not going to want to miss those. Those are some of my favorite Sundays on the church calendar. Not just because there's nothing wrong with today, though, either, right? Today is like the fifth Sunday of Easter, fifth Sunday of Easter. And again, in a few short weeks, we're going to be coming to the end of that. But okay, so in kind of the little mini-series we've been running here, the series of Easter that we've got going on here, We've been focusing, or I've been focusing, on the appearances that Jesus made to his disciples after his resurrection. Um, after Jesus literally conquered death, conquered the grave, and literally opened the heavens to us. That's what Jesus came and said he was going to do, to open the heavens to us. And I, I want to look at what that means for us today. That's what I really want to talk about today, Jesus opening those heavens for us. But I want to show you in Scripture that this is a common theme in the New Testament, because we can read through these things and, you know, it can hit us in the head with a sledgehammer and we still think, oh, I didn't even see that, and keep going, keep going, keep going. But opening the heavens is a major theme in the New Testament. Take Mark 1.10, for example. This is right after Jesus was baptized. Immediately, Jesus coming up out of the water saw the heavens, what? Opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending down upon him, right? So later on after this, after this moment, um, Jesus is having a conversation with a couple of disciples. He's having a conversation with Nathaniel. He saw him under the tree there. Nathaniel was blown away, and Jesus said, now. He said, that's nothing. He's, Jesus literally said, you're going to see great and unsearchable things which you do not know yet. And this, this is John 151. Jesus, he, Jesus said to him, Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The heavens are going to be open. And just one more, like I said, this is a common theme through the New Testament. Just one more to make sure that we're uh, on the same page here. Um, I want to show you the moment that Stephen uh, was being martyred. He was being stoned for the things that he was saying, the things he was testifying about Jesus and saying, you guys killed the Son of God. You said you guys killed the Messiah, and they didn't like it, so they started stoning him. But here, uh, verse 56, Acts 7, verse 56. Stephen, he, Stephen said, behold, as he's dying, 
He said, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So this is something that's there for us. That's something we should be paying attention to, something we should be able to understand. So I've shown you several, several verses. I could show you many other verses that say the same thing, but, but you get, get the idea. So Jesus opened up the heavens, and that's a big part of what we are celebrating during this Easter celebration, this 50 days of Easter. Jesus opened up the heavens, right? So now, if you're sitting in those pews out there, you should be having a couple questions come up in your mind. You should be asking me, how did he do that? And what did it look like? How did he do that? And, and what, what, I'm so glad you asked. All right, good, all right. That's why we're here this morning. So in order to fully understand this, to understand how Jesus opened up the heavens, we've got to kind of back up a step a little bit. Like I said, for the Easter celebration, we've been talking about Jesus after his resurrection, after he's been appearing to his disciples, the things that he's been teaching them, the things that when we turn the gem of Scripture, we can see ourselves reflecting on it. Today, we're going to change that around a little bit. I'm going to grab my big gem over here. I kind of forgot it. So we're going to take that gem of Scripture. Remember, the Hebrew rabbi said that Scripture is like holding a gem in your hand. And turning it around and over in your hand, they said it had 70 faces or 70 facets to it. And so and I've been saying this to us all along. I've been saying we have to be able to look into Scripture and see our reflection come back so that we can apply the things that we're learning. We can put ourselves in their shoes and we can understand that. But the, Hebrews, the rabbis also said one other thing. They said you've got to turn that gem until that light shines on you, until God's glory shines on you, and you can understand what God has in store for you. You can understand what God has done for you. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to turn that gem and we're going to let that light, we're going to let God's light shine on us. I hope that's not shining in anybody's face. But we're going to let God's Shine, light shine on us. Let him identify who he is and what's been going on. So rather than talking about after his resurrection, we got to go back to the day Jesus died, right? We call that Good Friday. And trust me when I say that was, that was a very good Friday. Um, Fridays in general are good. I get that. But this one was great. This one was exceptional. This one was remarkable. Several remarkable, amazing, extraordinary, astonishing things happened that day that we can sometimes just skate over the top of and not really grasp and not really get to them. I want to share two of them uh, with you this morning. This is more of a Good Friday thing that we talk about, but I just really want to share some uh, two things that happened the day Jesus died that should absolutely blow our minds. And I want to look at it from both a biblical perspective and a historical perspective, and then through God's perspective. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about an event that happened the day Jesus died, the day he was crucified. They all say that the, sun, or the sky turned eerily dark in the sixth hour of the day. They all say the same thing. And we look at this now from not only a biblical standpoint, but a historical standpoint, and then the significance of this. Look at this now. Matthew 27, verse 45, it says this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now, just trust me on this one. We can do the math if you want to. But the sixth hour is 12 o'clock noon. The ninth hour is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 12 o'clock noon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. Now, this is just one of the more remarkable things that happened that day. Um, but I, I want to just kind of met this one out a little bit. Um, the Greek word for, for fell here is the uh, Greek word genomae, which means it kind of snuck up on them. It kind of gradually happened. They didn't really realize it was happening, but before they knew it, it was dark. And then and that word dark here means, um, we see that actually in the New Testament quite a few places, but it means that, um, that it's, it's very dark. That's what the other place we see, that it, it's very dark. So, um, and we also see that it was a cloudless day. I'll get to that in a second. So for some reason, right, some reason, this, dark, uh, this darkness crept up on them, and by 
the time it got there, by the time they realized what was going on, it was very dark, right? Very dark of what was going on there. Okay, so again, we see that in the New Testament. By the way, while we're at it, um, the word for land there is the Greek, Greek word ges, or gis, um, and that means the whole earth. That literally means the whole earth. So what we're saying here is that uh, deep darkness crept up over the whole earth and put the whole earth in a very deep darkness. Okay, so that's, again, covered the entire earth at the time Jesus was crucified. And no real explanation for it. Um, it's not an eclipse. It didn't last three minutes. It lasted three hours, this darkness was there. And so, um, you know, I don't know. You want to hear the coolest part? Maybe not the coolest part. But the coolest part, a very cool part, is that um, non-biblical historians talk about this event happening. You know, we talk about that, oh, the Bible doesn't have any historical credence to it, but it absolutely does. I mean, I, you know, people say there's none. Well, you know, we got to stack like this high. Sometimes we got to dig for it a little bit. And thankfully, there's people that are doing things like that, that are talking about that. So non-biblical historians, right, talking about this event, collaborated this event. For example, this dude right here, I'm not going to play who dis with you on this one. This is a guy named Thallus. Thallus was a historian, and he was writing, we have some of his writings from about the year 52 A.D., 52 A.D., which is about 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And now other people will kind of, you know, not give him credence to that because, oh, it's 20 years after that. But, you know, seriously, if, if the group that we see right here, if we just got together and we were going to write some historical uh, events or some historical content of what happened on 9-11... 20 years ago, we'd do pretty good with it, right? That kind of etched in our minds. We've got that pretty good. We could give some great details. So could they. The day that the dark turned, or the earth turned completely black for three hours, everybody would remember that. We'd be able to kind of uh, collaborate with that pretty well. Okay, so that's what this guy named Thallus is writing about this. But the coolest part about Thallus is that Thallus was a Jesus skeptic. In other words, he didn't believe who Jesus was. He acknowledged fully that Jesus existed. He acknowledged fully the, the miracles and the things and the teachings that Jesus did, but he just said, this is not the Son of God. There's no way that's possible. That's where he was. So that's where he was coming from. He acknowledged fully that the, that the earth turned, the entire earth, as Thallus says, that the entire earth turned black for three hours between noon and three o'clock on this day. He said, you know, about 20 years ago this happened. And he said, but it wasn't because Jesus was the Son of God. It was some kind of crazy eclipse, is what he said. And again, we, it can't be eclipsed. In fact, so ridiculous that was, there's a third sentence century historian um, Julius Africanus that wrote about Thallus's writings and said, this guy's out of his mind. How could the earth go black for three hours and make it sound like it was an eclipse? And he actually uh, referenced a couple of other historians that wrote about it. We just don't know who those historians are. We don't have their writings. We don't have any credibility there. But we do have, stay with me, one more Greek historian named Feljan. Feljan wrote an extensive um, chronology in about 137 A.D., and he says this, I, I, I don't have it on the board, but I've, I've got to read it. That's why I keep looking at my notes here so I don't forget this. He says this, a guy named Felgen, a Greek historian, wrote this in 137 AD. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is the year 33 AD, does that ring a bell in our heads at all? 33 AD, he says, there was, quote, the greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, I mean, <laughs> noon, right? So that stars even appeared in the heavens. And then he goes on. We're not talking about these things, but we could talk about these things. He said there was a great earthquake in Bethania, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Now, just like Thallus, um, this guy, uh, Feljan, 
um, tried to explain the darkness away with an eclipse because he said there's no way Jesus was the Son of God. That just doesn't make any sense. It must have been some kind of crazy eclipse. So again, if we're ever looking for non-biblical support of Jesus' existence, here it is. I mean, it's tucked away in a way we wouldn't really look for in a place that we wouldn't really understand to find it, but right there for us. So we have after the fact, after that darkness, and we have prophecy about it beforehand in Isaiah. Take a look at Isaiah 50, verse 3. God says, now I kind of, I probably should have given a little more context here, but you, you trust me. It says, I clothe the heavens with darkness and cover them with funeral clothing. Okay, so in this same section in Isaiah, and I, again, I just took a couple of nuggets out of here because I didn't want to read the whole thing, but and then in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, this is Jesus. It almost reads like um, Psalm 22, right? It says, I didn't hide my face from insults and spitting, right? So we had it before, we had it during, we have it after. We have all this uh, historical content about this moment that happened. Darkness from 12 o'clock noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Significant. Okay, the 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock thing. That's the significant thing that is a reoccurring theme, not only in the Bible, but from these historians that are saying the same thing. It was crazy. 12 o'clock, everything went black till 3 o'clock or a little after that, right? 3 o'clock, 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Okay, so now remember the day that Jesus died. This is Passover, right? And the high priest is going to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So now the high priest has the Passover lamb that we talked about that comes in on Lamb Selection Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. The lamb comes into town, comes in through that east gate. We talked all about that, right? About the lamb coming through the east gate, being tied to the post and being examined and inspected. Well, now day uh, on Friday, that's the day that things are going to start happening. So 12 o'clock, Jesus is hung on the cross at 12 o'clock, and it starts to get dark over 12 o'clock. Meanwhile, back at the temple, we're going to talk about this whole thing in a second. Back at the temple, Caiaphas has the Passover lamb, and he's starting, he's all in his priestly robes and everything, and he's starting to prepare the Passover lamb for the Passover sacrifice. It's going to happen in a couple hours, but there's a long preparation process that starts at 12 o'clock, starts at noon. He might not even notice how dark it was getting out there because of what he's got going on. So this darkness going until 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock is significant because Caiaphas is now coming up to the temple. Right? There's two parts of the temple. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. But he's coming up at the temple to offer the lamb, or the blood of the lamb, of the Passover lamb, to atone for the, for the sins of the world, or for the, the, the nation. And at that moment, at the time of the evening sacrifice, 3 o'clock is when Jesus dies. The lamb of God that is here to take away the sin of the world dies. So now, again, turning that gem, looking into it, living into it, you know, putting ourselves in that situation so that it's not, not just words on a page, right? The Bible becomes 3D, not 2D, something we can walk around and we can feel that sun hitting us and we can smell the dirt and the, and the dust that's going around here. We can hear the crowds, we can see the lamb that's right there in front of Caiaphas, completely dark out here. Now Caiaphas comes up, he's ready to sacrifice this lamb, and then he's going to go sprinkle the blood into the Holy of Holies. Now, here's what happened. Um, the moment of truth, really. Um, there's no way for us to know if, the, if Caiaphas really had time to sacrifice that lamb or not. But one thing is for sure, when, when Jesus said, it is finished, you know, a few miles away from Calvary and a few miles away from the temple, a crazy thing happened. Now, there's, there's two curtains inside the temple. Um, and, you know, when we think temple, we might think those big cathedrals in Europe, but it wasn't like that. When you think temple, think more like a shoebox because this building is not really very big. But there are two very big curtains. Okay, so you got, you got this shoebox here, right? And you got, you got two sections to it. 
And yet, right here, you have a curtain that, that is in the front of the entrance to the temple. And it's kind of to keep people from looking in and seeing what's going on inside the temple. And so there's two sections. There's one here, and then there's another one back here. Here we have the holies, and here we have the holy of holies. And in front of the holy of holies, there's another curtain that's hanging there. This curtain is 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, and about 6 to 8 inches, a handbreadth, 6 to 8 inches thick, right? So there's a curtain hanging there. And so what this does is this separates the holies where the priests are working and doing sacrifices and doing bread offerings and all kinds of different things. We'll get to that another time, maybe. But then that separates the holy from the holy of holies. Holy of holies in here is the Ark of the Covenant. Why is that significant? Because God told Moses when he was with the tabernacle, right? The temple is just a permanent tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent that they went around. God told Moses, you got to have a curtain here because I'm going to come down and I'm going to be on earth and I'm going to commune and I'm going to fellowship with my people here in the temple in this Holy of Holies. And that's where we had the Ark of the Covenant until, until we didn't have it anymore. And that's God said, that's the mercy seat. That's where I'm going to come. That's where I'm going to sit. That's where I'm going to be. And so we need this curtain here to cover and make sure that I'm separated from my people because I'm too holy to be in your presence. So that's what was going on here. So now, the moment Jesus dies, the moment we were reading about here a second ago, uh, the moment Jesus dies, that curtain that's protecting everybody from the Holy of Holies gets literally torn in two. That inner chamber where, that, where the Ark of the Covenant was held, the God, the mercy seat, where God would come down to heaven, you know, from heaven and, and be with his people. This curtain that was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 68 inches thick, as if and it, in, in the description that we get there, it's torn from top to bottom as if God just came down, put his hands on that curtain and just tore it right in half, right down the middle. Now, again, keep in the moment here. Caiaphas is standing here with a lamb ready to sacrifice. I mean, and the temple was a very holy place. And priests, no matter how many times they'd been in there, they were still a little uneasy, still a little nervous and making sure we do everything right. Now, imagine that curtain. Imagine a piece of cloth that size, you know, and it's woven and Grace read all about how it was read. I'm sorry, Faith read about how it was, how it was woven in different ways. It's an elaborate thing, and it's huge. Imagine the deafening noise of that curtain getting ripped. Imagine how, how, how loud that must have been. And imagine the look on Caiaphas' face while he's standing there, and it's happening right there. Imagine what's going on here. And now, imagine this, if you will. The Holy of Holies is now open, right? This curtain that God said, put there for your own protection. And don't mess with it. Don't go behind it. Don't do anything. All of a sudden, this curtain is just laying there now, and here we're looking at the Holy of Holies, right? So Caiaphas is, is shocked in two different ways. Number one, that curtain is torn. Number two, he's looking in the Holy of Holies, and guess what? God isn't there, right? Where is God right now? He's on the cross, right? So the mercy seat, right, when Jesus was lifted up on that cross, the mercy seat went, went from being there in the temple to being the cross, not a permanent thing, well, a permanent thing, but not something we got to keep doing and doing over again because when Jesus was there, that mercy seat, that blood of the final sacrifice, the, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, it was no longer necessary for the high priest to make those other sacrifices anymore. The blood of Jesus had now settled the issue once, now, and forever. And to point that out, to let us know that, and to help us understand that, to help us relate this to our relationship with God, God took that temple, he took that curtain, he took it out of the way. He took off that barrier. It was literally a barrier between us and God. And the only person that could go in there one time a year was that high priest. That's it. One day a year. Right? But God said, we don't need this anymore. 
Why? Because he's made us flawless. Because we are now his people. The blood of the lamb has taken away the sin of the world. And now we can be in his presence because he's taken away our sin. And now we can be in his presence. To show that and to make sure that we understood that, he said, we don't need this curtain anymore. Get rid of this. Thank you, Moses. We needed it for that whole time. But now we're done with it. We don't need it anymore. And so now, since the way to the Holy of Holies is open, been thrown open, been torn open, wide for us, right? The heavens have been open to us. We need to take time and acknowledge that. Understand that. Make that a part of our lives. Make that a part of our relationship with God. To understand there's nothing separating us anymore. The only thing that's separating us from God is us. The only thing that keeps us from God is our schedule. The only thing that keeps us from God is our priorities. God says, here it is. I'm opening it wide for you now. There's no other way about it. Here we go. So we need to take time, not like I said earlier, not just carve out time, to literally make time for God, to make time to enter into his presence, because that's what he did. He said, now you can come into my presence, and we should say, giddy up. Come into his presence to worship him, to make our requests known, as it says in Philippians 4, 6. Right? Don't worry about anything, pray about everything. Bring it to me. Because of what Jesus did, because of what God did as a result of that for us, and faith, read it, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Hebrews 4.16. This is the money verse right here. This is what we need to bring home with us. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us approach God's throne of grace, and we can do it with confidence. That throne of grace used to be behind this massive curtain took 300 priests with ropes to move that thing so that things could be done with it. But it's not there anymore. We have complete access to the throne of God. God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, Philippians 4, 6. All right. So since this is God's promise to us, since that is God's promise to us, that we can approach his throne of grace with confidence, I'm suggesting this. What's keeping you from doing this, from dropping everything that you're doing and go boldly before the throne of grace and to do it not just once in a while, not just when we get around to it, but to do it every day and to carve out, carve out that time to do it for his glory and for your sake. Amen? Amen. You got 20 more minutes? Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's stand. Oh, nobody laughed at that one. <laughs> And let's confess what we believe.